That's a power, powerful entry. I like that. If we could just have that going the whole time, that would really feel good. Maybe some lights going on behind me. My name is Tommy. I'm an elder here at Venue. Our every Sunday pastor, Chad, is out this weekend. Is it, do y'all hear like a humming? So very thankful for the opportunity to come up here and to teach. Like any good Nicholas Spark movie, that was a test to see if you were going to get that. Because I said good and Nicholas Spark at the same time. I'm sure the girls were like, what? No, they are good. They're all good. Like a good Nicholas Spark movie. Let me just finish with my analogy here. Um, the goal of Nicholas Spark, I think, I don't, I, I'm, have I seen one of their movies before? One of his movies? With you, probably? Okay. I think what his goal is, is to make people cry. And so that is his end goal, is to make people cry. Or, the, yeah, if you're looking, reading right to left, the end goal is to make people cry. And so all of this, like, hour and 52 minutes leading up, or hour and 35 minutes leading up to that, is preparing the way so that you cry. I think that's what the goal is. But either way, what we learned from Nicholas Spark, and that would be the last time I use a Nicholas Spark analogy if I preach, is that he begins with the end in mind. He begins with the end in mind. Good movies, good TV series, good books, they always have a good, solid ending that maybe wants you wanting more, and so then they figure out how to get there. Some TV series that I really loved... I don't think they had the end in mind, and therefore they just didn't know how to end it. And you just kind of got there scratching your head like, this doesn't make sense. Jesus began with the end in mind. He began with the end in mind. And the end is the kingdom. That's the end. So everything Jesus did from birth on was kingdom. He was kingdom-minded. Jesus had a kingdom perspective. He was focused on the kingdom. He was focused on the kingdom. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, says, The kingdom of God is twofold. The kingdoms of grace and glory. The kingdom of grace is God's drawing men to himself out of the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of glory is consummated at Christ's return. The kingdom of grace is the beginning and the kingdom of glory is the end. The kingdom of grace leads to the kingdom of glory. So we have kingdom, Jesus, kingdom-minded. And we see that playing out in Luke in two ways, kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. Let's just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you came. I think that you came to this earth and you made a way for us to live with you for eternity. 
in your kingdom. Lord, you did not have to do that. But you're gracious and you're loving. And so you did. Lord, I thank you for this morning to be reminded of your love for us. To be reminded of what you came to do and what you did. And so, Father, I just welcome your spirit into this room this morning. Lord, I ask that you penetrate hearts. Penetrate hearts, Father. Lord, I pray that you are glorified in all of this. Lord, that is our purpose, is to bring you glory. We have fallen short, and we thank you for your forgiveness. But I ask that this morning you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This week has been a rough week. There's a good chance I might cry this morning. I know it might be a shocker. The enemy has distracted me, has discouraged me, has stretched me. I've gotten lost in the details that I should not have gotten lost in. I feel like I wrestled a lot this week. And so this time of teaching is probably going to be a little bit like a roller coaster. But the good news is, it's not about me. It's not about my gift of speech. It's not. It's about his word. And it's about Jesus. And so I hope and pray that as I fumble through this, he would be glorified. So that's what we're shooting for. So I mentioned that Jesus was focused on the kingdom. We see that in Luke 1, 32 and 33. I'm going to go through a bunch of scripture. I wish I could have put it up there, but I'm going old school. It's just paper this morning. Verse 32 and 33 says, this is Gabriel talking to Mary. He says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. First mention of his kingdom. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. In Luke 4, 43, he says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Again, what was Jesus? The end, the kingdom. He was sent for this purpose, according to Luke 4, 43. Luke 8, 1 He went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom to come. The end, the kingdom. In Luke 9.1, he sends the disciples out, giving them the power over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom. And then in Luke 9.28-31, he says... 
Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, this is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus, the end in my, the end for him was the kingdom. And he knew excuse me, that his journey through Luke was going to Jerusalem. And then last we see that in Luke 12, 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. The end, his end is to give us the kingdom. That's what he set out to do. Everything leading to Him dying, coming back, ascending into heaven was kingdom. He was kingdom-minded. He was focused on the kingdom. And so it brings us to Luke 13, 10 through 35. For those that are here for the first time visiting, we've been, we walked through Luke, we stopped walking through Luke, and now we picked up walking through Luke again. And our verses for today, chapter 13, verses 10 through 35. It's a long passage of scripture. And I'm sure any good pastor could probably break it up into about 30 sermons. I'm not one of those. So we're going to do it all this morning. 10 to verse 35. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, 
you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a lot of information. And so we're going to break it down. What we see here is Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem. Kingdom minded working his way to Jerusalem. And so that is where we're going to start in that section right there, verse 31. So if his purpose is to get to Jerusalem and then the Pharisees come to him and tell him to go away, he says, they say, go away. Herod wants to kill you. If that's his purpose to get Jerusalem, he's not going away. And he clearly says that. Pharisees tell Jesus to get away from Jerusalem, abort his mission because Herod wants to kill him. His response is, tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. So not only is he saying I'm not leaving, but I'm going to give you my game plan here. Today and tomorrow I'm going to be busy. And on the third day I'm going to be busy. So for the next three days, I'm going to be busy. I'm going to be busy doing the work that I was called to do in Jerusalem. And as he goes in, you can just see his heart break because he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says it twice. Usually in scripture when you see something said twice, it means great importance, draws attention to it. That's why it was so amazing when he cries out, when the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Holy three times, unheard of. And here he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's about to walk into, but that does not deter him from his mission because his mission is kingdom minded. He's focused on the kingdom and nothing is going to prevent him from getting to Jerusalem to die on the cross to usher in the kingdom for us. I love how he says that his goal is to give us the kingdom. That is his desire, is to give us the kingdom. And so it mentioned before by Thomas Watson, the kingdom twofold, the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. And what we see throughout scripture, throughout Luke so far is the kingdom of grace. He speaks of the kingdom of glory, but the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of grace is Jesus. And in Luke eleven twenty, it says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus is the kingdom. As Chad mentioned last week, the kingdom is where the king is. Jesus is the king, therefore he is the kingdom. And what we witness throughout Luke is this kingdom of grace. In Luke 1, when Mary's pregnant with Jesus, she comes to see Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth encounters Mary, what is her response? She encounters 
the kingdom of grace? And her response is, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Reading on Luke 4, 38 through 39, Simon's mother-in-law, she's healed, I mean, she's sick, she gets healed, and what does she do when she encounters the kingdom of grace? She immediately rises and begins to serve them. Luke 4, 41, as the demons come out, as they're being delivered, they cry out, you are the son of God. These are people encountering the kingdom of grace. In Luke 5, 4 through 11, story of Jesus preaching from the boat. And he tells Simon Peter, go out and cast his nets. Simon Peter says, we've been out all night, nothing. He tells them to go out again. They go out fishing. Fish upon fish upon fish. And what does Simon Peter do? He falls down at Jesus' feet and he tells Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And then they returned from fishing and they followed him. They encountered the kingdom of grace and they were amazed. They fell on their face. They wanted to follow Jesus. Luke 5, 12 through 14, the leper is healed and Jesus tells him to tell no one. If he tells him to tell no one, I would think that leper is ready to tell everybody. But Jesus instructs him to tell no one. But go present yourself to the priest. In Luke 5, 17 through 26, he tells the paralyzed man to rise, to pick up your bed and go home. And what does the paralyzed man do? He goes home glorifying God. He encountered the kingdom of grace. In Luke 7, 11 through 16, the widow's son is raised from the dead and everyone glorifies God. In Luke 8, 26 through 39, the, the story that Scott shared a couple weeks back, the man, the demon-possessed man is healed and he sits at Jesus' feet and Jesus leaves and he says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no, go back to your town, go back to your villages and tell what has happened. And he goes, around, goes out proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He encountered the kingdom of grace and it changed his life. In Luke 8, 49 through 56, he raises a girl from the dead. Her parents were amazed and again, Jesus charges them to tell no one. And in Luke 9, 37 to 43, Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And here we get to Luke 13, 10. He says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. She encountered the kingdom of grace. She's healed and she glorifies God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. 
The people encountered the kingdom of grace and they glorified it, all the things that were done for them. Thomas Watson said the kingdom of grace is delivering people from the kingdom of darkness. And here we see clearly that this woman was possessed or was, as it says, Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day. Satan had bound this woman. And here the kingdom of grace is restoring her. And this is the first passage of scripture that knocked me on my heels. Because I realized that I'm that hypocrite. I'm quick. I'm quick to point out why things don't work. Why when someone encounters the kingdom of grace, I begin to question. Instead of glorifying God like these people did, when they witnessed this woman who was bound for 18 years, stand up straight and praise the Lord... Instead of being like one of these people and glorifying God because she encountered the kingdom of grace, I am like the leader of the synagogue getting caught up in the stupid details that mean absolutely nothing. So what if she was healed on a Sabbath? This leader just watched a woman be healed miraculously and instead of falling on his face like Simon Peter did and say, depart from me, he starts saying, you did it wrong. You can't heal on the Sabbath. There's plenty of other days you can heal. And I find myself that I am that. I am that hypocrite. And I'm sorry. Jesus heals a woman. And she encounters the kingdom of grace. And she glorifies God. And all those that witness it glorify God. Amen. Amen. So what happens after that? He goes straight into two parables. And I think he went straight into these two parables. I don't, I don't know. But I think he went straight into these two parables because in his mind he's thinking... You just don't get it. You don't get it. I just healed a woman and you're complaining that it was done on the Sabbath. You don't get it. You don't understand why I'm here. We learn throughout Luke why he's there. Kingdom minded. He wants to give the kingdom to his people, to his children. And so he goes and begins to explain two very simple parables. And this is the second passage of scripture that knocked me on my butt. It's been a rough week. Because I want to figure out what the aha moment is of these parables. And when you start to research these parables, there are great scholars out there that say 50% would say, oh, we're talking about the goodness of the kingdom and 50% talking about the evil of the kingdom. And so you can make a case for either one. And literally for two nights, I was stuck at these two simple parables. Wondering, what am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to communicate this? And I reached out and I said, and I asked people to pray for me. I was like, I'm stuck. (laughs) 
I mean, Jesus used parables because people didn't get, couldn't understand when he used big words. I mean, he used the word seed and bird, door. You know, those aren't big words. I mean, I, you know, they're not. We've complicated religion. Jesus never complicated religion. It's very straightforward, very simple. But see, that's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to distract and discourage. And so I spend nights wondering what two simple parables mean. And then I wake up Thursday morning and I see it for face value. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. It's pretty simple to me. Instead of trying to figure out the aha moment, why don't I just look at it and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming to this earth as a seed. Those that heard this understood. They understood that a mustard seed was tiny and insignificant. And they understood that the result of a mustard seed would be a plant that would grow anywhere from 12 to 15 feet tall. They understood little to big. And what he's trying to explain to them here is, this is what the kingdom is like. Look, I know what you think kingdoms are. You think kingdoms dominate. You think kingdoms make their presence with fanfare. That kingdoms grow by accumulating more and more and more. And that's not what he's saying here. With the, with the, the, uh, the parable of the seed, I, th- I think it's, it's that upside down kingdom. You're looking for this big dominating kingdom to come in and that's not how it's happened. I am the kingdom. And I came into this world in a manger. I came in this world in a very insignificant manner. And what's going to happen is my kingdom's going to grow. And as my kingdom grows... The birds, which he speaks over back in, earlier in Luke about not being anxious because he cares for the birds. My kingdom will grow and the birds will build their nest there. Why would a bird build their nest there? Because that's their home. That's where they rest. And so for face value, he says, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms that you think. It starts small and it grows large and you get to rest in it. And then he says, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Face value. They understood what leaven was. Yes, it had connotations early throughout scripture of it being sin. But they understood what leaven did. Leaven, once it got in, expanded and grew. That's what it did. Simple. So this kingdom is not an outside-in kingdom. This kingdom is not a kingdom that comes along and says, you're now mine, I dominate you, I own you. No, the kingdom starts small and it's an inside-out kingdom. It's an inside-out, it starts with Jesus and then 12, then 72 and then it grows and grows and grows. And before long, you get to witness its growth. You get to see, because it gets big. It doesn't start out big. I'm thankful that Jesus is patient with me and allow me to see that. I'm thinking he didn't hit me on the side of the head and go, you're such a dummy. 
So this is what our kingdom is. This is the kingdom of grace that is ushering in the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace is what Thomas Watson said is a seed and the kingdom of glory is the flower. Here we see the seed. Kingdom of grace is the seed and the kingdom of glory is the tree. It's one kingdom. We just get to witness it in two different ways. And then he moves into the narrow door. Has that been up there the whole time? That's awesome. So in Luke 13, 22, he gets asked the question. Uh, in, th- in 23, it says, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? Now, in, in context, there's two ways to look at this. This is... This is uh, Jesus is speaking to the Israelites and, and the assumption is that the person who asks this, although we don't know, is an Israelite. And so he basically says, are those who are going to be saved to be few? And so he says to them, he doesn't say to this one person, he says to them, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. You know, as an Israelite, that would be a bit shocking that they're being told that they may not enter the door. You know, the Israelites thought they were a shoe-in because of their association. Because it says, then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. He says, I will tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. What well, we learned, talking about kingdom of grace and kingdom of glory, I think those two come together in these verses, verses 22 to verses 30. Because we see that the kingdom of grace, I think the kingdom of grace is the narrow door. And the reason why I think that is because in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, it says enter, or in John 10, 9, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So right here, we see that the narrow door is the kingdom of grace. And what happens when people encounter the kingdom of grace? They glorify God. They fell on their face. And so here he's saying, to enter the kingdom of glory, you must go through the kingdom of grace, the narrow door, and that kingdom of grace is me. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few find it. But what's interesting, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And when I first looked at strive, immediately you go to works. So then I start wrestling with, so it's works now. That's how you get through the narrow door. It's works. I know it's not the case. I know it's not works. I know it's by grace. I know it's nothing we do to get to the narrow door, but you know, the enemy's on attack. But if you look at the Greek root for strive, the word is agwon. Agwon. It's where we get the word agony. 
But what's interesting, it's also found in 2 Timothy 4, 7, where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. So if you get nothing out from this, this is what I want you to get. How do we strive? How do we strive to enter through the narrow door? And the answer is we need to recognize that we are desperately dependent upon Jesus. We are desperately dependent upon Jesus. Those that encountered the kingdom of grace were desperately dependent upon Jesus. The leader of the synagogue that questioned why you would heal on the Sabbath was desperately not, desperately not dependent upon Jesus. Instead of falling on his face in awe of what he did, he questions the method in which he did it. He was not dependent upon Jesus. But as we saw throughout Luke, if you were desperately dependent upon Jesus, when you encountered the kingdom of grace, you fell on your face. You glorified God. You worshiped him. You were willing to follow him at all cost. And in Luke 8, 42 through 48, I think is a great passage that communicates as Jesus went the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians she could not be healed by anyone she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased and Jesus said who was it that touched me when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and you are pressing in on, and, and are pressing in on you. And But Jesus said, Someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman, desperately dependent on Jesus, that was willing to touch the robe, the cloak, the material, not touch Jesus, not have Jesus lay his hands on her, but he, she felt like if she could just touch what he was wearing, that she would be healed. And in touching what he was wearing, Jesus stops and says, someone touch me. What do we see? That, who was it? Peter says, well, everyone's touching you. Look, they're all pressing on. And he goes, no. He says, someone touched me. And I felt the power leave me. The people that were around pressing against him were not desperately dependent on Jesus. They just wanted to get close. This woman Striving to get into the narrow door. Striving, recognizing that for her to be healed, she was desperately dependent upon Jesus and she made every effort to reach out to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So we see... Kingdom of grace, 
and the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of the grace, the narrow door. And what do we see about the kingdom of glory? And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of glory, we get to sit in the kingdom of glory and recline at the table. Recline at the table wasn't, well, you recline at the table, you were enjoying yourself. You were at a celebration. You were lounge, you were eating, you were drinking, you were having a good time. That is the kingdom of glory. That we get to sit in his presence and recline at the table. And we get to recline at the table with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. And all those that have come before us. And the only way we get to the kingdom of the glory is when we encounter Jesus. The kingdom of grace. So the question is, is how are we kingdom minded? How do we keep, keep a kingdom perspective? And as mentioned before, we're desperately dependent upon Jesus. So how, poor, how important is it for us to be kingdom-minded? Well, he tells us when he teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. When he teaches us to pray, he doesn't start out by saying, talk about all the things you need. He talks about establish who you're talking to. You're talking to your dad and you want the kingdom to come. And so that's what we should be praying as children. We should be praying, Lord, allow your kingdom to come. Allow your will to be done. And, and so my wife and I have been praying that recently. We've been praying that the Lord's will be done. That his kingdom come. That he shows us what to do. And when you pray those things and you hold your hands open, you can't be too picky how that looks. And so this past week, I lost my job. And I realized that my hope is not in my work. My hope is not in my creativity. My hope is not in my education. My hope is not in my accomplishments. My hope is in Jesus. And when you want to be kingdom-minded, when you want to be kingdom-minded, you have to be desperately dependent on Jesus. Because I think when you're desperately dependent upon Jesus, you recognize that your hope is not in yourself. It's on Jesus. That's why we're desperately dependent upon Jesus. We're not dependent on ourselves. We're not to be Tommy-minded. We're to be kingdom-minded. And we are the kingdom-minded, so we experience the kingdom of grace. When Jesus reveals himself to us, we fall on our face and we say, I don't get it, but thank you, Jesus. Because then we know one day we're going to enter into the kingdom of glory. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. And so this morning, as we look at the scripture,
we see Jesus heal a woman. She encounters the kingdom of grace and she glorifies God. We learn that the kingdom starts small and significant and grows where we get to enjoy resting. We learn that it's important to fight the good fight, to strive to enter the narrow door. We learn how to strive to enter the narrow door. We learn how to be desperately dependent upon Jesus because one day we want to recline at the table. And we know that Jesus wants us to recline at the table because he came to this world with the end in mind and that was his kingdom. As he tells us, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'm reminded of that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There are some here this morning, like the Israelites, who believe that just their association with church and growing up in a Christian home guarantees that they're going to enter through the narrow door. And like the Israelites, when that door closes and it's not opened again, there's going to be weeping and anger. And so, as we get ready to take communion, search your heart. And if you've been living your life self-minded, not dependent upon Jesus, not desperately dependent upon Jesus, you need to repent. You need to repent. Because when we take this bread and we dip it in the cup, we're acknowledging that we're in desperate need of Jesus. Because it's only by Jesus that we get to experience the kingdom of glory. Maybe someone here this morning that this is just foreign to them. And for this first time this morning, they're experiencing the kingdom of grace. And we say, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. If it is your first time to experience the kingdom of grace, then as the music plays, if you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be in the back. Mr. Rodney, over there in the corner, seek one of us. Let us pray with you. Dear gracious Heavenly Father,